The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we have a lot of news going on this week on the finance and the debt issue. Uh, we're going to get to a lot of the details today, but first... There was a bombshell report that came out of Boston University's Global Development Policy Center that revealed that two of China's largest policy banks, China Exim Bank and the China Development Bank, sharply curtailed their lending to developing countries from $75 billion in 2016 to just $4 billion last year. That is a stunning drop. And we wrote about this today in our newsletter. It's going to be one of these issues that's going to transform everything about the China-Africa engagement. We have a show coming up on this issue of development finance next week, uh, but we encourage everybody to go check out our website for some of the news and some of the analysis that we're doing, and also, of course, to go to the Global Development Policy Center to see what they're doing with this fantastic new interactive loan database that they've got, the almost 900 different loans that they look at from both Exim and the China Development Bank. Today, we're going to be talking about private creditor debt in Africa. Now, this is really interesting because, Cobus, there's been this dance that we've seen, especially in places like Zambia, but across the continent among three key pillars in the current financial crisis. So one, one leg of the chair, if you will, is the multilateral lenders. Those are the traditional lenders like the World Bank, the IMF, and we can also throw in the, the Paris Club lenders in there. Those are the, the big powers of the rich countries, if you will, uh, France, the United States, Britain, Germany, and whatnot. Then there's another pillar, which are these bilateral lenders, and that's where China comes in, and they are very much a new player in this space as well. And then again, that goes to some of the things that we were talking about earlier with the Boston University data. And the third pillar is the one that, again, is playing an increasingly important role and one that we don't actually know that much about, which is from private creditors. These are these bondholders. Now, on Saturday, November 14th, this became very, very important. Zambia was the first country to default on a portion of its debt when it failed to make a $42.5 million payment on approximately $3 billion of Eurobond notes. This was the first default this year from an African country during the pandemic. Now, in the aftermath of what happened in, in November, everybody started pointing fingers at everybody else. Zambian authorities, they basically said, well, it's the fault of the private creditors. The private creditors said, listen, we would have cut you guys some slack had you been more transparent about the deals you have with China. And because there's not enough transparency between the deals between China and Zambia, and this is not just in Zambia, but in a lot of countries, the private creditors were concerned that they were going to get screwed, that if they cut them any slack, the money then would be just handed right over to the Chinese. And so they said, listen, we're not going to, to, to cut you any slack unless you show us what the extent of your debt is with the Chinese. Private creditors were also asking for the IMF to get involved and for the Zambians to get an IMF deal. Now, interestingly, just this week, 
uh, Zambian President Edgar Lungu started talks with the International Monetary Fund, so they did take that. Now, very quickly, on the Chinese side of this, on October 20th, uh, Wu Peng, who is the top Chinese diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa, he addressed the most sensitive issue in all of this in a tweet. And let me quote you on this tweet. I have noted that the Zambian government has repeatedly stated that it will resolve Zambia's debt issue in accordance with the, quote, equal treatment of creditors principle. China will support related efforts with all parties, including private creditors. Okay, Kobus. This is a hot mess right here. Everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. Everybody's saying it's not our fault. Everybody wants their money back. Nobody seems to be blinking. And at the end of the day, the people that are suffering most are the Zambian taxpayers who are now going to be paying more for debt because the premiums are going up. It is really, it, it's just a mess. Yeah, you know, kind of it, one of the things I think one should keep in mind is that this doesn't just have to do with with individual governments' choices. This really also has to do with the the kind of options that are open to Africa, you know, in 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 the global in the global landscape. Um, you know, so so one of the big cliches of of African development is this this number that's that's quoted in almost every report I read, which is which is an African Development Bank estimate that that Africa needs to spend between 130 and 170 billion dollars per year to, to make up its infrastructure gap. If Africa doesn't close this infrastructure gap, then then it really constrains the kinds of growth that it can pursue. Um, and then it also causes, you know, that it, it, it means that it's, it's getting harder and harder for African governments to to take advantage of the youth dividend that that's present in many African countries, which is that, you know, the the, the average age of an African um, is about 19, I think, you know, so so there's there's kind of this massive, uh, like temporary opportunity to to really boost development. But in order to do that, one needs electricity, one needs ICT networks, one needs all of these other all of these kind of physical infrastructure, um, you know, kind of across the landscape. Um, so you know, if if there's new indicate there's new now new indications that that China is is probably going to be lending a lot less to Africa, um, we'll we'll see how that shakes out. But but it it, it only sharpens this issue um, because if the only option for African governments is to lend commercially, then you know kind of that really it really reshapes the landscape and and it really then kind of throws into high relief you know how it's how these governments are supposed to reach these development goals since the zambia default last month there's been a lot of discussion in the media also in the non-governmental space in the development space of why can't private creditors and bondholders just do X. So, for example, why can't they just forgive the debt? Why can't they be more flexible? Why can't they do all of these different things? And these are good questions. And, and it's surprising given that an industry that is wealthy as the financial services industry, they actually don't do a very good job at communicating these things. So we are so thrilled to have on the program somebody who knows about this, Ken Colangelo, who's an emerging market strategist and an ESG analyst. And for those of you who are not familiar with what ESG stand for. It's uh, environment, social, and governance. I kind of think of it as the new kind of sexy way of saying corporate social responsibility, CSR. Ken's been doing this for more than a decade, working in emerging market fixed income, primarily in many of the world's least developed countries. 
He also volunteers his time with the Emerging Markets Investors Alliance, a nonprofit industry group that represents institutional emerging market investors like those who are in Zambia. And he joins us on the line from New York, a longtime listener going all the way back to the early days in 2010. A very good morning to you, Ken. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Kobus. Very excited to join you today. It's wonderful to have you on the program, and it's and the timing really couldn't be better to have someone with your expertise to help us better understand, again, the perspective of somebody who's in the trenches working on some of these issues, but you also have this bigger perspective through the Emerging Markets Investors Alliance as to what is the, you know, the bigger situation. Let's just kind of put the, the question out there. Uh, we'll start with a very simple one, but the most obvious one. Listen, the multilateral, the G20, they have this thing called the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. The Chinese are negotiating kind of debt suspension holidays, but it doesn't seem like private creditors are budging in the least. Why can't private creditors either give debt suspension holidays or simply cancel the debt? What is the issue here? Well, first off, one of the things that's important to remember about the private sector eurobond holders is that there's significant diversity in opinion. There isn't one kind of private investor. Eurobond holders span the gamut of long time horizon institutional investors, more shorter time horizon hedge funds. And the clients that they represent aren't as simple as very rich folk that live in the high-powered cities of London or New York. A lot of investors represent pension funds, uh, which feed into the everyday citizen, uh, and, and they have a responsibility to their clients, a responsibility that's enshrined in law, fiduciary duty, to make sure that the money is responsibly invested with the correct amount of due diligence. When over the summer, when the DSSI was being discussed and they were looking for cooperation with the private sector, they engaged with the International Institute of Finance or the IIF to sort of have a messenger for the private sector to explain some of the issues they were having with going along with the DSSI. They were able to engage and produce a number of voluntary principles of what they would like to see from countries that would want to participate in the DSSI, and, and that communication has been made to the multilaterals. But to act independently without a critical mass becomes a lot more difficult. It's not as straightforward for them to simply say, you don't have to pay us this year, we, we understand that you're facing difficulties. They run the risk of inviting criticism from clients and being judged as irresponsible in the market because they, they just didn't know what they were getting invested in, uh, given the risks. Uh, ideally, you would want to see investors you know, in the country speaking to policymakers, but the nature of these kinds of investments, being in some of the most far-flung places in the world, precludes that level of engagement. And what we at the EM Investors Alliance are trying to do is provide uh, ways, education, specific advocacy, that they can go to countries and ask, if we want to see a restructuring of your debt, if we want to see a uh, resolution to this crisis, what exactly is the larger picture? Let us see what your public debt is, what kind of currencies they're on, the terms of the agreements that you're handling. And then from there, we can responsibly, with, with the support of our clients and the support of our commu industry community, then make more significant structural attempts to solve these 
issues. Okay, so so you know, I I realize that that you know that that people kind of frequently are a bit blithe about just simply calling for debt write-offs, but what was what was the the um, argument within um, you know among among commercial de- um, creditors about the or what was the conversation about con- um, participating in the debt suspe- debt servicing suspension initiative, you know, which would essentially just simply put a uh, a six-month freeze, or now it's a year-long freeze, um, on on servicing debt without without you know kind of really talking about writing off any debt. So one of the purposes of the DSSI was, and as you've noticed, the the time period for that suspension continues to increase. There's still talk of it extending into a two-year moratorium on interest payments, and when the when those kinds of time horizons are unclear it becomes a much more complex conversation. Are, is simply forgiving or pushing off and capitalizing interest later going to solve the current problem that these countries are under? Um, it almost seems as if they were just simply buying time to have a much larger conversation to systematically approach these kinds of crises. And the private sector has really acknowledged that. They, they knew when the six-month time period was announced that that wasn't going to be enough time for enough fiscal space to be brought out so that they could deal adequately with the crisis. And so what a lot of private investors have preferred to do is engage idiosyncratically with individual countries in order to figure out with the IMF, of course, and the World Bank, what is the actual solution that is sustainable over the long term. Even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, many of these countries were burdened with unsustainable debt loads. If you look at the debt sustainability analyses that is done by the IMF and the World Bank, um, most countries were deteriorating um, pretty rapidly as they were taking on more and more liabilities. And, and the pandemic simply brought that issue to the fore. And trying to act quickly, the DSSI was proposed. But what a lot of investors have failed to sort of buy into is, does the DSSI truly help a lot of these countries to the level that we won't be back in another two years, that we won't be back in another five years. Here's an opportunity for us to deal with these problems on a more systematic basis, really engage with kinds of the expectations, the norms of investing in emerging markets so that they can align properly with other objectives that we have from a global stakeholder standpoint, like the United Nations ensuring that we have more attention given to environmental issues, social issues, governance issues. We, we want to make sure that the problem is, is fixed on an ongoing basis, as opposed to simply rushing to do an action that may not actually have the kinds of effects that we're hoping for. I believe it's in the official sector's interest to go along. And, and one of the reasons why the official sector is allowed to act in such a way is because of the political motivations. They're not bound by things like fiduciary duty. They're, the clients that they manage their money for are nation states, which have much longer time horizons when they're thinking about what a few millions of dollars of interest payments will accomplish. Now, everything you say makes sense. I get it. I, I, I totally get it. And the idea that 
emphasizing that your clients in many cases are public and private sector pensioners, it's investors and it's individuals. If they lose their money, you know, these are people who are going to get hurt. There's another person on the other end of that debt cancellation. In fact, a couple months ago when this all started unfolding, I went on this big rant and you may have heard it and and I got a I got a uh, an angry email from some US government folks because I was criticizing that the Treasury Department and the White House had not done enough to take a leadership role on giving financial services companies the the leeway on the fiduciary responsibility because again you are subject to US law and people in the investors in London are subject to English law. And I got an email back from Isan Irani Paraset, uh, and he's like you. He works in the financial services industry, and he said, if uh, African bond debt is relieved, quote unquote, what will happen is the retirement accounts of developed countries will bear the cost. So there is somebody who loses on this. The part that I'm having trouble with and that a lot of people, when they hear that argument from you and from Isan, is the idea is back in 2008, 2009, when we were at the height of financial crisis, and we were about to, you remember what was going to happen. I mean, we were about to fall off a cliff. And none of the, the arguments came up about law or came about what's right or came about systemic. It was, let's pile in as much money to Wall Street and the street in London as we possibly can to save the system. And a lot of people are saying that the fire is burning just as big right now in Africa and in developing countries than it was on Wall Street back in 08 and 09. Back then in 08, 09, the financial services industry made no objection when the Federal Reserve in the United States just backed up dump trucks full of money and bailed out Wall Street. Now when they're asking for something in return, all the technicalities come up. How do you respond to something like that? Well, I think it's important you know, to learn from the historical examples that we've had. In the, in the financial crisis, what America and the, the global host of nations decided on was to flood the world with liquidity, both in their national economies, but also, which was given less media attention, uh, at the global multilaterals. The IMF uh, SDR allocation was significantly increased to provide uh, a whole host of programs for low-income countries. In, in, in comparing it to the Wall Street crisis, African countries were we're not being approached from a solvency perspective. They, they, the concern wasn't that these countries could operate on an ongoing basis. The concern was that there just wasn't enough cash on hand in order to pay for a number of debt servicing obligations that these countries had. Similar to in Wall Street, where corporations that were very good businesses were suffering because they just lost their access to financing. So much of ensuring that the global economy continues to roll on in a steady sort of pace is making sure that liquidity is available and access to finance remains available, uh, whether that be through the private markets, which is primarily how corporations finance themselves on the, on the stock market, or in the African development, in African countries, sovereigns also tap international creditor markets like the Eurobonds, but get a lot of their funding from official sources like the Paris Club, like the multilaterals, like the Regional Development Bank. Um, the only difference that, in terms of what the solution sort of calls for, is that in America, providing liquidity to individual companies is a much easier task because the ownership is all within one country. When providing liquidity to foreign countries, instead of doing it just strictly unilaterally, 
the way that America and Europe has approached it is to do it from a much more cohesive consensus basis, relying on the IMF and the World Bank to give those monies in the best, efficient, most effective ways that they can. So we've seen over the last while, um, as this crisis has unfolded, we've seen I've seen um, calls for um, that that new loan agreements should add um, comparability of treatment clauses, um, which would which would essentially. Um, yeah, you know, maybe maybe I should rather ask you, you know, kind of how those would work, what 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 the point of them of them are, and you know, kind of then whether you think um, that that's actually a workable solution. So one of the things that is always first and foremost is the seniority of the debt obligations. Who does a country pay back in times where the money is just not available? Um, and first and foremost, the the number one creditor that enjoys seniority rights is the IMF and the World Bank. And when they lend money, they do so with the full faith and guarantee that all of the nation states that are membership to the IMF and contribute to their resources will be paid back to ensure no disruption in this process. Um, Once you go beyond the IMF and the World Bank, the other creditors are, are making sure that there's an equal treatment of debt when there, when there are difficulties, financing difficulties. Many bond uh, prospectuses will include uh, these treatment clauses uh, to, make, to ensure that a government can't simply treat one bondholder differently than in a different kind of loan class. Um, do, do you foresee those actually becoming, you know, kind of where, where, where there's, there's a comparability between private and, um, and bilateral lending, for example? Um, you know, like, like how do you foresee those kind of clauses playing out in, in actual loan agreements in, in the future? So, so again, looking, looking at history, even the advent of collective action clauses, one, one of the issues that bondholders have dealt with uh, most famously recently in the Greek crisis was what are the terms of the individual bonds and what, are, what is the waterfall structure of them. The big thing that collective action clauses got was uh, accreditation and approval from the IMF um, to push forward and say that that would be standard. There are a number of EM specialists and the EM Investors Alliance holds calls and events that feature um, some very famous debt restructurers uh, discussing what kinds of covenants should be required when different countries would like to tap the international markets. And, and comparability is first and foremost on the mind because we don't want to see treatment to go where any kind of savings uh, achieved at the private sector simply goes to pay for loan agreements on you know, oil sector liabilities that are owed to China at much more usurious rates. In order to have investors feel comfortable with being one of a host of creditors, these things are standard, these pledges to ensure equal transfer, equal transparency, uh, equal treatment. The, the other thing that you should sort of put on your mind is what are the kinds of uh, economic expectations and who is the one that actually formalizes this process and, and goes through? There's no such thing as a bankruptcy court at the sovereign level. It's, it's one of the, lar- the biggest uh, reforms that have been requested and discussed. Um, and because there's no formalized restructuring process, all of these 
restructurings are done on a case-by-case -case basis, where a creditor committee is formed and discussions are engaged, but nothing along the lines that you would see uh, at the corporate level, where a corporate would give, be given bankruptcy protection, their assets, assets assessed, and a fair distribution of them to, the, to pay off the debts. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Witts University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitzChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. Uh, I'd like to go to now some of the questions that... Uh that others have brought up. And Hannah Ryder, who is the CEO of the Beijing-based consultancy Development Reimagined, she's quite outspoken on debt issues in particular. She wrote a column in African Business Magazine back in November uh, November 15th. And let me read from you from that, and then I have a, a soundbite from her that I'd like to play for you. Uh, Not only are the solutions being applied so far insufficient in the short term, they are also grossly inadequate to meet long-term needs. Uh, she goes on to say, international debt markets as currently shaped exclude and penalize the poorest countries that need them most. If a long-lasting solution to COVID-19 debt problems is to be sought, the global debt system itself needs to be reimagined. Now, let's take a listen. She has a question for you, uh, Ken, uh, from Beijing. What are the specific reasons that the private sector has not offered immediate payment holidays for low and middle income countries, in particular in Africa, as a result of COVID-19? Is it because low and middle income countries make up a large percentage of your overall debt holdings? Or is there another reason? Uh, for many uh, banks, it surely would make sense to ensure your uh, borrowers are able to maintain payments in future rather than going into uh, major issues right now. So it, it's, I'm curious to understand your full strategy behind not offering the payment holidays. Thank you. So one of the, one of the things that we have to learn from history is that this isn't the first time that forgiveness of debts has been discussed and actually, you know, executed. Um, the HIPIC initiative, the highly indebted poor countries initiative that was done through the IMF and the World Bank did forgive significant amounts of debt, almost wiping the slate clean in a sense from official, official sector debt. Now, that debt was held primarily before uh, private sector international capital markets were open to many of these countries. And the results were that as soon as the debt was forgiven, it was quickly, it was quickly built up again. And, and we see debt levels that are much higher than they were at the HIPAA level. And the hesitation that you see from international investors for simply offering these temporary holidays from interest is that what are these monies being spent on? A complete revolution of how the debt system is sort of off the table, not just because of the political will just isn't there, but, but also I don't know how productive that would be to sort of rip up the system and start completely new. What we would prefer is that we have a better comfortability of investing in these countries, that there are minimum standards and requirements that are expected in terms of what kind of data that we can look for. 
um, one of the big of one of the big structural reforms that the IMF is currently undertaking, and I draw your audience's attention to the reforms in the debt limits policy that the IMF just recently put out in November. Um, and, the, and this is an emphasis on, on trying to figure out when you give these kinds of uh, holidays, where does that money go? Is it simply hell, uh, taken in as graft and fueling corruption of certain leaders who are looking to use this uh, crisis as a way to enrich themselves. Um, investors don't have legal authority in foreign countries. And so if something like that would ha were to happen, as recently happened in the case of Mozambique, where hidden debt was discovered from the IMF, they, they, it's not just hidden debt from investors, it's hidden debt from official creditors um, as well. Uh, what, what investors I think would become more um, attuned to is if we could all agree on what kinds of transparency to expect from countries and then begin the conversation of uh, having structures or allowing for uh, debt holidays, if you will. I mean, I don't think that a debt holiday is effective if the fiscal space that's opened up is used to enrich individuals. We need an accountability mechanism in these countries in order to make use of the debt relief efforts. The HIPAA initiative was just an example of that, where there was significant fiscal space opened and countries chose to engage with commercial sector creditors, um, sometimes in preference to more onerous regulations uh, from multilaterals or in concessional aid. I think here is where China really comes in because the terms and the structures in which they lend money have unique characteristics that are much, more, much different than simply straightforward euro bonds or syndicated loans or official sector aid. These kinds of obligations, we already have significant concerns as to are they being reported at all? Is that in coverage of the general government debt? These definitions are so important to how you go about having a sustainable process. And, and it's not just the definitions. It's one thing for the IMF to say that general government debt shall include guarantees to state-owned companies or contingent liabilities. It's another thing for the technical capacity to be at the level where countries can actually give those numbers. Are they even measuring or consider those kinds of debts part of the general government? The IMF and the World Bank now have clearly come on the side where guarantees and state-owned enterprises are clear contingent liabilities of the government. And unless we get a clear picture and countries are transparent about the kinds of uh, contracts that they've entered into, what kind of collateral is securitized in these liabilities, it's, it's very difficult for an investor to even help the people of a country by simply giving a debt holiday or forgiving a piece of interest or even capitalizing that interest later on. Um, one of the tools that the IMF has used, and they'll say creating these kinds of limits on borrowing or creating these types of requirements to engage in programs pushes countries to improve their economic environment and thus will follow greater access to financing lower cost of capital.
you know, in, in the discussions of, of um, the current crisis, I, I've seen increasingly people talk about um, the danger of, of a kind of a lost decade for Africa. Um, and, you know, some people comparing it to Latin America in the 1980s. Um, you know, do, do you share those fears? What, what, what from, from your perspective of, on working with these creditors, um, what does Africa's lending landscape look like in the next 10 years? Well, as far as a lost decade is concerned, I think that the continent does have a lot of initiatives ongoing that are aligned with many different kinds of actors that don't want to see uh, deterioration in the countries. Uh, that's probably the first observation I'd make is that the African continent is made up of a whole diverse set of countries and too often it's discussed as this one investment des destination. Um, you know, many different languages are spoken, different kinds of uh, economic plans are discussed. Uh, but one of the big emphasis, and that's changed in recent years, is that a lot of these plans and uh, forecasts need to be written down and put into a policies that are then given to the IMF and monitored by their country teams and provide technical assistance when necessary to assure that we're at and meeting those minimum requirements, not just in data transparency and monitoring, but in the basic sense of the rule of law. With the way that we've seen just the monetary environment, companies are flush with cash that need to be put to work in positive yielding assets because interest rates have been lowered to the point where many securities are actually offered in negative yield. Uh, there's this desperate need for investors to find investments that actually make use of their money and, and can see positive returns. That's one of the reasons why emerging markets continues to present a great opportunity to both you know, invest in development, but also achieve real rates of growth. Africa has, like uh, Eric mentioned, and, and you brought up the, the youth dividend and how that youth dividend has an effect on these individual country plans will have a knock-on to how investors sort of see the, lo the landscape. In, in even despite the COVID-19 shocks that, that we've seen this year, uh, investors have a very high demand for emerging market debt, and we've seen successful issuance. Cote d'Ivoire in the last month, and, and next year there's uh, Nigeria, Namibia, and South Africa have bonds coming due that are likely to be refinanced. Uh, the question is, is how do you integrate a youth population productively into an economy? And that's why there's a focus on infrastructure. Traditional plans, and that's based off of the historical examples set by Southeast Asia, is that with a burgeoning youth class, companies should be enticed by wages that are much lower than comparable developed markets. And so uh, companies would be encouraged and incentivized to build bases and bring skill transfer to a lot of these countries. However, without the infrastructure, the roads, the ports, the airports, that benefit, that, that incentive to engage in cheaper wages abroad is just simply not there because the costs are made up in the cost of transportation. And that's why infrastructure has become one of the biggest points and focuses for investment to make it so that companies have a much better environment to work on on the ground. 
Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the question of Ivory Coast. And they, just as we talked about how Zambia is the first country this year to default, Ivory Coast is the first country in the pandemic era to also have a successful Eurobond offering that was uh, that just went through last month as well. So, so there is there is real green shoots here in terms of of some of a lot of interest in African emerging market debt and Eurobond debt as well. And so it's not all gray skies as I think it's made out to be, even though the situation is quite dire. Ken Colangelo is an emerging market strategist and an ESG analyst. Uh, he also volunteers his time with the Emerging Markets Investors Alliance. And we are so grateful, Ken, for you coming on the show and breaking down some of this, especially for our audience who is not as familiar oftentimes with some of the finance part of it and what private creditors are thinking. And again, as we we talked about in the beginning of the show, this three-legged chair between the bilateral debt, the multilateral, and then the private creditor. Very little is known about the private creditor, so we're so grateful that you had took some time out of your very busy schedule this morning to join us and explain some of the, the thinking that goes on in Wall Street. If people want to follow what the Emerging Markets Investors Alliance is doing, they want to learn more about uh, what your, your, your positions are, where can they go to find out more information? Well, our website, which provides a number of our schedule of events and research articles that we produce, is eminvestorsalliance.org, and I'm sure you'll include a, a link. Um, one of the speaker series we are putting on is specifically talking about Zambia uh, on how resource mobilization efforts could be increased and what are some of the structural governance initiatives we'd like to see that would make investors more comfortable Wonderful. Well, we'll put we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Ken, once again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to staying in touch with what the EMIA is doing. Great. Thank you so much, Eric and Kobus. Kobus, the main message coming from Ken is that this is a lot more complicated than it's made out to be, I think, in the broader discourse about private creditor debt. Too often we're hearing why can't they just do X? Why can't they just do Y? And in many ways, it's like herding cats because there isn't a singular entity here. A, a, a bank or like HSBC or JP Morgan or any of these big funds is representing thousands and thousands of clients and getting them all lined up to be able to agree on, say, a debt cancellation would be next to impossible to do or a debt suspension in any way. The only way this happens is if the national legislatures actually give breathing room to the financial services company to do something on the fiduciary laws, that is those obligations to, to represent their clients' best interest. If the national legislatures, say Congress or parliament, you know, say, okay, here's some breathing room, this is what you can do, then they get some room to do it. But we haven't seen that from the national legislatures, certainly in the US and the UK. So this is more complicated. I get frustrated oftentimes when I go to social science webinars and I hear a bunch of academics, a bunch of scholars, a bunch of analysts, nonprofit folks talking about the private creditor debt and they don't know what they're talking about. And I think we need to hear more from people like Ken just so that we can be better informed of what their position is. You know, obviously they, they represent not only powerful interests, but 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 widespread interests as well. And 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 as he pointed out, you know, frequently they they also represent um, the the interests of of you know of normal folks rather than just you know kind of big faceless corporations. Um, it seems to me that 
you know, it's 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 we're at one of those that kind of never let a good crisis go to waste moments. You know, um, in that you know, if 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 this crisis forces more more transparency and a more uh, kind of equal playing field in terms of in terms of um, you know who lends to Africa and how Africa is treated in the market and and the the way that um, the kind of regulations under which lending takes place, you know, kind of it it, it might. As he pointed out, you know, there's, there still is a big demand for emerging market debt, um, and obviously there's a, there's a big big demand for financing in Africa. So, you know, kind of if if it's possible to create some kind of space in which African governments are get better at at um, at you know at, at at bringing in taxes and better at you know more transparent in the way that they deal with things and and all of this kind of moves us forward then great you know then we're getting into the governance question and this really has nothing to do with the chinese the imf or the private creditors this has to do with the fact that Edgar Lungu is playing political games in Zambia. This has to do with Felix Chesikidi in, in the Congo is not exactly the paragon of transparency and good governance. This has to do with the fact that governance in Nigeria is highly problematic on some of these issues in terms of transparency and deals and the role, uh, you know, particularly in the Buhari administration, some of the things that they have done. So what does that mean in terms of we got that means better governance has to come from the bottom up. It has to come from the African presidential palaces and legislatures and enforcement of these deals. And the insistence on transparency may become far more acute now because we talked about it at the beginning of the show. We're going to have a conversation about this next week. But the Chinese seem to be playing a very different overseas lending game now that more or less they are going to be kind of exiting stage right for a lot of the big lending that they've done. That may give more leverage to the multilateral organizations, again, to be able to force some of this transparency. So the good crisis here might be if the Chinese become far less, of a, far less important in terms of a player in the development finance space, as the data seems to indicate, then the IMF can start to basically say, you're going to do it this way or it's the highway. And it seems like the IMF and the private creditors are on the same pages on, the, on this issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, we ourselves have called um, for kind of a ra radical transparency approach, uh, you know, particularly coming from the African Union, that that it should be, you know, that, that they should set up, um, uh, you know, public loan databases and that they should start making, you know, putting pressure on member countries to to really publish all of their, all of the um the the loan information in the portfolio um you know if, if that if if we start moving in that direction then great my my worry um is that you know like the, this is this is going to be the first recession hitting africa in in 25 years right so a, a lot of a lot of the kind of stability and the, a lot of the the you know the, the kind of growth rates and the development rates and so on that we've seen you know for, over across the continent over the last 25 years happened against that background of of relative financial stability um when when that goes out the window um i think people people have gotten very used to uh, you know relative relatively 
calm Africa, right? Um, I, I think the, the the flip side of the, of the youth dividend is that you know, as as as, as Ken has also pointed out, that there, there's a there's a lot of potential for you know for for disruption by unhappy young people, um, and I think up to now we've seen we've seen I think particularly Europe and the US, you know, some of these actors thinking that that even if even if things take a downturn in Africa, then they are isolated, they are insulated from that. But of course, they're not, right? <laughs> you know that that that's a that's a, a big a big fantasy. You know the idea that that um, that the, these kind of these problems are not going to have a spillover to the developed world is a fantasy. Um, and the way that the, the kind of the the form that these spillovers are going to take, we still can't predict. So so that is actually what I'm worried about. I think that's a very legitimate worry. It's something you've been articulating over the past year and throughout this crisis. And, and again, it's not on the minds of people in Europe. It's certainly not on the minds of the Biden administration right now, I guess maybe because they're so overwhelmed with COVID-19 and the crises that they're having to deal with. Here in Asia, it's not really a big issue because probably what you're talking about is not going to directly impact them the same way that it would, say, Europe, where there's a migration issue or terrorism, which impacts the United States, tends to much more in terms of their interests overseas. But this is all interconnected. So we're going to continue to try and bring in the different players in all of this from the Chinese side, the multilaterals, and then the private creditors in order to give a fuller understanding of the Chinese debt and the Chinese role in all of this. Because again, we're always going to kind of come back to the Chinese issue on this, given that this is the China and Africa podcast. So uh, we thought today would be very interesting to complement our understanding of what the Chinese are doing by looking at the private creditor side of things. We're going to try and find somebody from the IMF or the World Bank to join us. They're not an easy bunch, actually, to, to approach. They never really want to talk to the media except for the big bosses, and they're impossible to get. But we're going to keep our eyes open to see if we can find somebody or at least an expert who knows the inside runnings of these organizations so we can get some insights on that. Once again, I do recommend that you go and check out some of the work that we've done this week on the Boston University overseas lending issues related to the Chinese. It's a very big deal. We're going to keep looking at this. That's coming up next week in the show. Uh, listen, all of this is available in our daily email newsletter that we're sending out, and you get that real-time analysis. So something drops that day, you're getting you know a full 500-word analysis in it. You get the news coverage in it. That's what comes with the newsletter. Uh, we also have a special half-off discount for students and teachers, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Try it out for two weeks for free. See if you like it. If you don't, you can cancel. You can send me an email. Let me know what you think. Eric at chinaafricaproject.com or you can reach out to Cobus at Cobus, C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another show. And then the week after next, we're going to have our annual year in review, year in preview show, where I guess in the case of last year, Cobus, we got everything wrong <laughs> in terms of the I mean, we completely whiffed that one. So uh, hopefully we're going to have better luck this year. But who could have predicted this calamitous year that we've had? So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.